You can all call me Chris. CR is the story behind that. There's a uh, Hollywood actor named Chris Wiley. So when you Google Chris Wiley, he comes up for pages and pages. So I said, I got to figure out a way to be found. That's, that's the whole story right there. And uh, so I, I, I feel so pretentious, you know, when, you know, that, but it's sort of just, you know, if you want to find me, just type in C.R. Wiley and I come up for pages and pages. <laughs> but anyway, it's great to be with you. And uh, I, I, I'm glad to have actually made it. Uh, the, the wife and I were on the road yesterday and uh, we had to switch planes because of some problems uh, with our plane and we had to deboard in Chicago. We were flying out of Hartford and get on another plane and consequently we missed the connecting, connecting flight to, Spok to Spokane uh, in Denver. So I spent like nine hours in Denver. Just so happens we have family there so we had dinner with them. <laughs> But uh, anyways, uh, I didn't get here uh, to uh, Moscow until 2 this morning. And so I was up at, at 5, so I was 24 hours without sleep. I've had about 4. And, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about this. You guys remember Hill Street Blues, the, the old television show, right? Yeah, it was a great show. It was a lot of fun. There was this episode with uh, Benny Hitler, the narcoleptic comic. It, it was just as weird as it sounds. But, you know... Benny Hitler would fall asleep in the middle of his own act. You know, he'd be, he was a hilarious comedian, but he would fall asleep on stage. And I, that may happen to me. So if I, if I start to fall asleep, just walk up and nudge me. Well, uh, I'm really very pleased to be with you, and uh, I want to just uh, say a few things about, about infant baptism. Now, now my, uh, my perspective here is uh, that of a father uh, and and also uh, an advocate for the household, the traditional household, not the 1950s version, but more like the 1850s version. And uh, so consequently, the, that informs my, my approach. So there are a lot of things I'm not going to be getting into, but that's okay because they, they've already been addressed. <laughs> I listened to the talks, and uh, they were great, and I'm really pleased that they got into everything I'm not going to talk about, or pretty close. So, uh, and another good thing is, it's that I don't normally speak from a manuscript, but it's a good thing that I'm, I've got everything written out here because if I didn't, it would be a problem because I, I may fall asleep. Anyway, so let's go. Let's begin with an inspirational thought. And this is from Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Here's another inspirational thought. We don't choose what's true and what's not. I don't think most people really believe that truth changes us, whether or not, uh, uh, whether we want it to or not. There is what uh, scientists tell us about brain functions, so at a biochemical level, our physical state is actually changed whenever we receive new information, but I'm not going to talk about that. More or less, I believe, we assume that truth isn't quite true or isn't quite real until we say it is. We think we're impregnable, like fortresses. Truth may circle seven times and shout all at once, but the walls won't come down. Truth only gets in when it knocks politely, and we say, come in. But is that so? Think about bad news that you've received in the past. Did it make a difference that you didn't want to hear it? 
Last year, I was audited by the IRS. I've been audited before, but this was a full two-year review. Every deposit had to be documented, every deduction accounted for. It's one of the hazards of self-employment, particularly when you have as many deductions as I have. Friends in the same boat say the same. But notice of the, IR, uh, but notice of the audit didn't ask for permission to come into my heart, but it got in anyway. Truth is like a notice from the IRS. That's because it's followed by a reckoning. And an audit by the IRS is a reckoning. I could have used another form of bad news, like news about an illness, but that sort of thing is easy to dismiss as amoral, just a brute fact to cope with. Although we do say, why me? And that betrays our belief that the world is a moral order, or at least ought to be. But an audit is a moral reckoning. While it is true that you can lack information, and that was true for me, nevertheless, your alacrity for research, or lack thereof, and that was true for me too, is subject to judgment. It made no difference in the end whether my mistakes were honest or not. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. So at least the IRS still believes in objective standards. At least if you're not a famous political activist or something. And truth is objective. Your motives are not as important as the facts. You can lock the door, you can latch the windows, draw the curtains, you can even turn up the music and cover your ears and sing la la la. But when truth serves notice, the bulldozer called reality is on the way. Now, what in the world does this have to do with infant baptism? Baptism serves notice that judgment day is coming. And there's no better time to serve notice about the end of life than at its beginning. Now, this may come as a surprise. After all, baptizing a baby should be a happy occasion, right? Relatives, big meal, everyone dressed for the special day. But Paul says we are baptized into Christ's death. That's what water says. Water has a curious, uh, curious double edge in the Bible. The Lord parts the waters in creation, and again at the Red Sea, but the waters return in the flood of Noah, and they fall on the, on the pursuing Egyptians. And by the way, uh, Peter and Paul use those stories to describe baptism. Baptism says that things wash out in one of two ways. Either you are saved through death or you die. One of the reasons that we know that the Bible has a happy ending is we're promised that in the world to come there will be no more sea. Revelation 21.1. If you're into Oceanside real estate, that sounds like bad news. But it's not. It means that judgment is over. The waters no longer hang over our heads like the sword of Damocles. I can't give you a comprehensive overview of baptism. It's a large subject and the, le and the literature is overwhelming. Instead, I'm going to focus on how baptism relates to a peculiar feature of fatherhood, the most unpopular feature of all. But first, here's why I didn't begin my talk with the standard proof text for infant baptism. I've noticed over the years that proof texts get you nowhere when it comes to changing minds about baptizing babies. Anybody can give me an amen about that. 
Yeah, just get you nowhere. When people do come around, they do so because they sense the inner logic of covenant theology. If you come to see covenant theology as just another term for biblical theology, you'll embrace infant baptism eventually. There are a few things about covenant theology that you need to know, though, in order to follow its logic. The first thing has to do with a little word, the preposition in. The word in is important to people that reject infant baptism too, but the difference has to do with who is in whom. I recall years ago being trained in a personal evangelism technique called evangelism explosion. Talk about malapropism. Just why an explosion should be construed as constructive or convey the spread of life when actual explosions do precisely the opposite just shows how sloppy we can be when it comes to our words. But leaving that aside, that's a personal gripe. The trainer in the method, which was inspired by door-to-door salesmanship, encouraged us to carry a card-sized copy of Solomon's Jesus at the Door to close the sale. You know the one I'm talking about, right? You've probably seen it, an image of a glowing and vaguely androgynous Jesus standing by an ivory-covered door. Same guy who painted, you know, the head of Christ that you see in lots of particularly Arminian churches. You've probably seen it. Anyway, I already said it. Uh, Our trainer pointed out that in the painting, there's no knob on the outside of the door. This is because Jesus is a gentleman, he informed us, falling for that old 19th century construal of the gentleman as a man smooth with the ladies and invited to their parlor games, ignoring the fact that the gentry knocked down doors all the time before that. Gentry and gentlemen, it's one of those etymological things. (laughs) Anyway. But you get the point. We're the ones that take Jesus in and give him shelter, not the other way around. We bring him in out of the cold for scones and tea. But wait. Doesn't the Bible talk about Christ in us? Yes, it certainly does, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about baptism. And we are, uh, he is not baptized into us. We are baptized into him. And by the way, that's the way the New Testament generally uses the preposition in throughout the course of the New Testament. We are in him. And this matter of being in someone doesn't stop there. We are said to be in others as well. In Adam, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, or in Abraham in Hebrews 7, 9, although that's dia there, that's a different preposition, but anyway, that's another story. Uh, We're even told that we were baptized into Moses at one point, 1 Corinthians 10, 2. But the thing to note here is the role of the middleman. You're included in someone else's actions. Adam sinned, so you sin. Abraham gave, so you gave. Christ died, so you died. Get it? Why does this seem so weird to us? In part, it's because we've been told over and over again that each of us is totally unique, absolutely unprecedented, little snowflakes straight from the hand of God. We're not in Adam. I am Adam, and so are you. Emerson said that exact thing, by the way. If you want to blame this on someone besides kindergarten teachers, you have plenty of people to choose from. 
At the risk of oversimplifying things, there are the big three when it comes to modern political philosophy, Hobbes, Rousseau, and Locke. You can think of them as the realist, the hippie, and the individualist. But you could say that all three were individualist in this one sense. They all believed that individuals are natural and social institutions are not. This way of, th of thinking has led to problems. Back in the 1980s, sociologist Robert Bella limed some of those problems in his book, Habits of the Heart. Fabulous book. He identified four threads of individualism in American culture, two that hold communities together and two that pull them apart. The two that hold them together he called biblical individualism and republican individualism. In, in these forms of individualism, people become themselves through their given roles in a community. But the two threads that unravel communities he called utilitarian individualism and expressive individualism. In these approaches, people use communities for their own purposes. And these are the forms of individualism that are on the rise and have been for a while. Even in churches, an example Bella gives is Sheilaism. Sheilaism is actually the name that Sheila Larson gave to her very personal faith when she was interviewed as part of the research for the book. Here is what she had to say. I'll do my best imitation. Like, I believe in God. I can't remember the last time I went to church, but like, my faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism. Just my own little voice. End of quote. Now I confess, I added the likes. But the rest was really her. <laughs> it just sounded so California Valley girl. I just had, I couldn't help. Myself. Folks, in, in real life, things don't work this way. Your own little voice didn't save you. And the church was there before you came along. And you need to fit into her life. She doesn't need to fit into yours. Covenant theology is not Sheilaism. It doesn't begin with you in the state of nature. It begins with a fact of nature. You were born into a family. And that if that a family is a Christian family, they should have baptized you as a baby. For many people, I, I know, baptism is, is a sign of their faith in Christ. And believers' baptism is contrasted with infant baptism by saying, that those who are baptized as babies are Christians in name alone. I'm afraid that this is a slippery slope that slides right into making the subject the meaning maker. Baptism is only real when the subject says so. We have a term for that, subjectivism. This is, there's a very short road from that to 57 genders on Facebook. That's why I'm concerned about a lot of our brothers and sisters or whatever. Now, sincerity is a marvelous thing, and we should strive to be honest, but it didn't redeem the world. It didn't even redeem you. Besides, we're inconsistent. At any given moment, you or I could be a raging sinner or a repentant sinner. And how well do you even know yourself, even in your best moments? Peter thought he knew himself. Lord, I will never desert you. I will die with you. Yeah, right. Perhaps you're untested. 
Perhaps your best intentions are paper thin. Now, here's how I finally came around on infant baptism. I wasn't born into a Christian family, for one thing. I wasn't born into these convictions. <laughs> so I did come around. Now, this may not move you. You may even think that this is the weirdest thing that I've said yet. But here goes. To get their bearings, Protestants have often looked to the early church like sailors looking to the North Star. This is called Fontes, which means returning to the fonts or the sources, and the most authoritative source is the Bible, of course. And studying it in the original languages is tremendously helpful. But translating the original languages into other languages is even tougher than you may suppose. By the way, I, I have family that were translators for the NIV. The chairman of the NIV Translating Committee and I had many conversations about translation. <laughs> so I have a little bit of background in this kind of thing. For example, sometimes there is no equivalent term for a biblical word in a language that you're translating into, so then you cook up something called dynamic equivalency, but that's another conversation. And even when there is a word, it may not have the same connotation as the original biblical word. Take the word household, for example. Now, you might think that translating the Greek oikos into the English word household is straightforward, but it isn't. Today, when we think of a household, we tend to think of a building or a family. But in the first century, there was a whole lot more to it. So getting back to the sources can mean, mean getting back to a world of lost meanings. This is why understanding the social world of the biblical authors is so important. There's good news, though, when it comes to that social world, we have a lot to work with. There's, the, there's literature and artifacts and architecture and boatloads of commentary uh, 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 by people on the ground at the time. So we have a fairly good understanding of the Roman world, and the same goes uh, for the Jewish world. So we know a lot about households in both. And here's what I came to see. After immersing myself in the literature for years, there is no way, no possible way, that you could have kept a Roman father or a Jewish father from bringing his ch kids to church to be baptized. No way. Roman father who had the power to do this, would not think twice about bringing his kid to church to baptize him. You know what that meant, right? Kid dies. And there were Christian households, and there was not one category for adults and another category for children. There were just households. Now, here's how baptism comes home. Baptism washes both ways. Parents bring children to church for baptism. That's the wash in. Then they take them home again, and that's the wash back. This says something about the authority of parents, as well as something about the authority of the church. First, the church recognizes the authority of parents. She does not confer it. But parents aren't sent home with nothing to do. They're sent home with both a standard and a task. By the way, this just goes to show how much the church needs households. They're essential to a Christian culture. This is a little aside. There are some people, uh, when, when some people talk about culture making, I think they confuse art school with agriculture. If a farmer collected tractors and other farm implements but never got around to farming, 
you'd have a pretty good picture of what some cool table evangelicals mean when they talk about culture making. They're all for making music and films and stories. It's babies they can't bring themselves to make. <laughs> but culture making is not artifact making. It's people making. And we do need the arts to make cultured people, so don't get me wrong. But first, you need people. And to make those, you need households, because that's where the seed meets the soil. The church can't replace the household, and the household can't replace the church. So let's stop trying. I'm kind of sick of this. They reinforce each other. And because both point, and, and that's because they both point to the end of the world and the great wedding supper of the Lamb. Now here's where baptism comes home for fathers. And this is really the point <laughs> that I've been leading up to. Baptism, getting back to that unpopular task, baptism presupposes the unpopular task that I left unnamed earlier. The task is so unpopular that you can even find people that will deny that it has a place in a Christian home. But I'm here to tell you that it is a father's primary task. You are a judge. Now, before you try to wiggle out of it, here are a couple of things for you to know. First, it's no use. You can't wiggle out of it. And second, you're the best person for the job. Today, when the only way of knowing the difference between the clothes that were meant for, women, for men and those that were meant for women in the LL being catalogued is by which sex is pictured in them, most people deny that men and women bring different things to child rearing. It's true that there are a number of things that men and women do that are the same or very similar. There's instruction and prayer, forgiveness and affection. I could go on. But in one respect, there is a, a, a significant difference between men and women when it comes to parenting outcomes. The research indicates that fathers have a bigger influence than mothers in determining whether or not a child will practice the Christian faith as an adult. It was the Swiss government that discovered this, not Lifeway. Maybe we should hire the Swiss to do our research for us, but anyway. I can't explain this with the certainty that scientists demand, but I have some old-fashioned observations. So if those are still welcome somewhere in the world, here they are. The first one is that the nearness of mothers to children when children are young means that the lessons that mothers teach are necessarily associated with childhood. And as a child grows, he wants to put away childish things. It's only natural. On the other hand, because men are generally larger and stronger than women, but also because fathers generally work on the periphery of a household, they come to represent adulthood to children and the wider world. Now, my second observation is closely related to this, this one. Because of secondary sex characteristics, for, for example, a deeper, more powerful voice, and because many men are more remote emotionally, a natural gravitas rests on a father and it makes it easier for him to represent authority and to exercise it. Now, this sort of thing makes sensitive guys uncomfortable, but it doesn't really matter because kids tend to know the differences between fathers and mothers intuitively. Even my dog 
knows the difference between men and women. I recall years ago standing in line at the Home Depot behind a mother and her little girl. When they got to the cashier, the little girl said in a loud voice, and this is not an exaggeration, it's about this loud, this is a man's store. Men buy stuff here. I think she was rebuking her mother for bringing her to that place. The mother and the cashier tried to reason her out of her convictions using the standard feminist arguments, but they didn't make any difference. The little girl only insisted louder, no, no, this is a man store. The embarrassed mother quickly paid her bill and rushed out into the parking lot. Meanwhile, the men all around exchanged bemused looks. <laughs> now, years ago, I heard Richard John Newhouse, this guy who founded the uh, journal First Things, say, a life without judgment is a life without meaning. A life without judgment is a life without meaning. It's because God judges that our lives mean something. What kids need is good judgment, not no judgment. And good judgment begins with a good standard, and that's what we have in the death and resurrection of the Lord. When we are baptized into him, the standard is applied to us. And a household that is governed by that standard condemns sin and praises righteousness. Let's take another look at Romans 6, 3, this time in context. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. To conclude, here's some advice on how to be a judgmental father. I think a great book. How to be a I mean, I, you know, it used to be when guys were uptight years ago in ancient times, you know, people needed to say, loosen up a little bit. Now it's like I look around all this loosey-goosey. I was like, tighten up a little bit. <laughs> so anyway, first a caveat. Judgment doesn't exhaust the meaning of fatherhood. A fa a fatherhood is large, a larger category. So just so you know, I know that. But in the interest of clarity, here's a list of things that a judge shouldn't do. He shouldn't micromanage. He shouldn't manipulate, he shouldn't guilt trip, and he shouldn't worry about whether or not he's liked. So what does he do? He should serve justice. And for that, he needs a measure of distance and a measure of gravity. He can't do the job without those things. And he keeps this end in mind. He wants the members of his household to be just. Ideally, a father should be able to praise his children without lying. So as you can see, I'm not talking about the magical incantations of the self-esteem cult. I'm talking about the old-fashioned order of things, where performance is followed by well-deserved praise or condemnation. I need to add another caveat here. This is not about you. If your children detect that it is, 
your authority will be compromised. It's fine to be proud of your kids, but don't take credit for their achievements. This is not living yourself vicariously through them. Here are four things that have informed my work as the father judge over the years. Number one, know your materials. A good, a good judge doesn't woodenly enforce laws. As Solomon demonstrated uh, uh, that, you know, in, in uh, 1 Kings 3, 16-28 with the two prostitutes, I think you recall the story, uh, what, he, what he demonstrates is an understanding of human nature. So to be a good judge, you need to be a good judge of human nature, why people do what they do, and so forth. So, you know, I, I sometimes, you know, you know, in the Reformed tradition, we're, we're into to the to law and gospel, and then there's this huge category we never seem to get to in our preaching or anything called wisdom. It's like, uh, as long as we just sort of rotely, you know, obey the law and never think, <laughs> we'll be okay. And, then, and we miss this large category called wisdom. Uh, what this calls for is wisdom. It calls for that, uh, and it also calls for judging character. And what I mean by that is... Uh, character in the fullest sense. Character is, form, uh, is formed both by the impress of God's hand. You know, there are certain things that you can see in a kid right from the start. Okay, <laughs> I know how this kid operates. Uh, but but it, it's also the impress of everything that goes into making a person who he is. And what you ought to do, to mix my metaphors, is work with the grain as, be, as best you can. Uh, but the thing to remember here is that people are not objects. Uh, they are fellow subjects, which means that they are ultimately responsible for their own decisions. Two, you're raising someone to be an adult. Someday you'll be dead. So a child, yeah, that's, <laughs> it's true, someday. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Uh, but with that in mind, it's sort of like buying ins you know, life insurance. You really ought to prepare for that, uh, it, that, uh, that time when you're no longer around says something, I think, when you don't ever think about that. But anyway, uh, someday you'll be dead, so a child should be able to exercise good judgment for himself or herself, and the sooner the better. This is why micromanagement and helicopter parenting are so counterproductive. It, they engender passivity and dependency, and like a self-fulfilling prophecy, because we don't believe our kids can ever do anything for themselves, they're never able to do anything for themselves. That's why we have this term adulting now. Anyway, so we set our kids up to fail because we're afraid to see them fail. For children to acquire good judgment, they must be, able to, uh, they must be free to exercise it. And for, for that, children need two things, knowledge of the standard and the space to act on their own. And this applies for, to everything, including the stuff of daily life. Here's a small example. My second son learned to drive on a standard. It was his choice. He had trouble at first, but then we'd, we uh, just took him to a parking lot and left him there. And we said to him, uh, when you can drive without stalling, come home. <laughs> Today, he prefers standards. That's my son, the steel worker. He's also a blacksmith, and I'll talk more about him another time. Uh, bringing the can, the third thing, bring the canons to bear on the inner life. Now, when you hear the word canon, hopefully you think of an authoritative body of literature. <laughs> you know, with one, you know, we got two ends instead of three. But anyway, 
the word comes from the Greek for a straight rod or bar. In other words, it's, a, it's for measuring things. There uh, are the canons of, there's the canon of Scripture, of course. Uh, that's first. Then there are the creeds and the confessions, catechism, catechesis for catechesis and so forth. But then there's also the Western canon. And that includes all sorts of things. There are stories and poems and proverbs and songs, all sorts of stuff that we generally don't associate with a standard. And that's the genius. Those things help us with the work of measuring the inner lives of our children. C.S. Lewis would say they help to give our children chests. That image comes from classical taxonomy of the human being, head for intellect, stomach for appetite, and in the middle, a chest for virtue. Today, we live in a world without virtue, a world without chests. But Christian fathers believe in chests. That's because we believe in manliness, which is what virtue implies, because the word virtue comes from the Latin for man, Virtue is the capable, manful ability to meet the challenges of life honorably. And the greatest challenge in life comes at the end. Number four, and this is the last one. You're preparing your children to die. Socrates said, philosophy is nothing but preparation for death. So the wise learn how to die. Remember how I began? Baptism serves notice. Death awaits. Either we are dead in Christ or we're dead in the end. I'm reminded of something that Philip K. Dick said, the author behind the film's Blade Runner and Minority Report. Quote, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. And that's a reality that doesn't go away. You're going to die. A father's judgments should prepare his children for the final judgment. Hopefully your judgments, by reflecting the judgments of God, will give your children good reasons to judge God faithful and true and trust him for his grace. By the way, you've noticed I've used the word judgment an awful lot. That's intentional. (laughs) I'm tired of evading terms. And we do have good reasons to trust him for his grace. Our Heavenly Father judged his only begotten Son in order to spare us from the death that follows death. And then he vindicated his Son by raising him from the dead so that we could be raised with him and justified. And that is the other reason that we baptize babies. We hope that those little lives will live again in the resurrection someday. Thank you. Thank you.